This is the Banning Tree's Possibility Podcast, where we sit with changemakers and frontline disruptors and shift the narrative of Compass to a world with brighter possibilities. Today, we are sitting from Kathmandu, Nepal, and I'm talking to a very dear guest all the way from Bali and New York. Uh, he's recently moved in Bali. He's called Dr. Miles, Dr. Miles Neal. To talk about him, Dr. Miles is a Buddhist psychotherapist and founder of the Contemplative Studies Program, instructor of psychology at Wheel Cornell Medical College, faculty member of Tibet House US and host of the Wisdom Keeper podcast. Author of the book, Gradual Awakening, Dr. Miles is based between New York and recently Bali, as I said, and has over 20 years of experience in integrating the science of the mind with meditative practices of Tibetan Buddhism and trauma research. Miles is a forerunner in the emerging field of contemplative psychotherapy and leads well-thought-out sacred journeys across the Buddhist world for himself and others. Dr. Miles, such an honor to have you on the show. How are you and how's Bali treating you? Well, thank you, Mukul. It's such a pleasure and an honor for me to be uh, you know, invited on as a guest on this well-reputed show and uh, look forward to spending many more hours in conversation with you. So this will be a great launching for our relationship as we move forward in life. A hundred percent. Just for just for audience, just to give a context, I'm in Kathmandu working uh, for the production of a film, uh, which will follow Dr. Miles' journey. He takes incredible journeys across the world, and he's taking this journey with incredible people as a pilgrimage across Nepal and India. And uh, we're making a documentary about it, which I am so, so, so much excited about because it's a whole new world. It's a whole new bridge from east and west, and uh, I, I, I honestly can't wait. What do you feel about that, Miles? McCool, really, I think there is a karmic uh, connection. I think nothing is by coincidence. I think, you know, uh, Phil O'Leary, the filmmaker, and I have gone way back now. He's one of my friends from New York. But the fact that we're sitting on this show right now is no small coincidence. I think there's a lot of synchronicity happening. And I think that the, the film is an incredible opportunity to really broadcast a sacred message at a very mythological time in, in, in history. We are now uh, coming out of the pandemic. I think uh, the pandemic itself is a symbol. It is a symbol of the death of rebirth of our culture. Our global civilization has gone through a, a mighty dark night of the soul and is about to reemerge or reboot itself. I, I tend to look at le- uh, reality from a mythological point of view. I think it is part and parcel uh, what, where, where I think we're going as a civilization, reclaiming the mythological uh, from, from uh, centuries of, of overly reductionistic thinking, overly left brain thinking. And I think this pilgrimage is, a again, a symbol. I think it's a symbol of people taking a sacred trip back into time, back into source, back into spirit, back into community. Reclaiming something that has been lost is really the thread that goes through my work. It goes through my, my latest book. It goes through pilgrimage. It goes through my podcast work on the Wisdom Keeper podcast. I often start the conversation with a guest uh, with asking them, what does it mean to go back in order to go forward? And I think this is exactly what the pilgrimage does. It is a portal back into time, back into the roots of Buddhism so that people who have become sick in a way, what I call the paradigm of sickness, have become overly 
consumed with commercialism, with ego, with egocentrism, uh, with with uh, flights of fancy about the material world. It is an opportunity for people to go very, very deep and reclaim something in their psyches that has been lost. And then to, in a way, it's not just an individual journey. The pilgrimage is also a symbol of unity, of, of people from disparate countries coming together, uh, people who, who have different walks of life, different backgrounds, uh, people who have much more spiritual knowledge, some that don't have any at all. Uh, the pilgrimage brings all kinds of people together. When we make it to the sacred site of Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha gained enlightenment, we see there, for example, just as a just as a just as a starting place, we see there people of many different kinds of traditions, backgrounds. So you have the Chinese Buddhists there, the Vietnamese Buddhists there, the Thai Buddhists there, the Sri Lankans. Of course, you have a smattering of Hindu pilgrims that come their way and see the Buddha as part of their avatar uh, uh, lineage, and all people are sitting there under the Bodhi tree, uh, really trying to connect with something very deep and universal in them in, in themselves. And whether they're chanting in the Pali, whether they're chanting in the Sanskrit, whether they're chanting in the Tibetan, or whether they're chanting in French, German, English, or what or Portuguese, uh, they're all connecting with something, a vibration, a vibration that brings their consciousness to a, a more expanded, a more integrated, a more harmonious uh, 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 frequency. And I think what could be better after such a dark night, a very long and arduous uh, disillusion phase that we have been through. Wow. Dr. Mars, your work is so important. And uh, I've gone through a lot about exactly the kind of journeys you take. And I think that you really go to the deepest source um, of all all the ancient wisdom. And I would say that all your work is kind of bridging the ancient with the future. And I would like to call it the ancient future because I think so much of, as you mentioned, um, in the name of modernization and a very reductionist way of thinking, we have left behind so much wisdom and beauty and magic. And uh, living away from India and Nepal, where I come from, and coming back to this part of the world, I think that I had never sensed how much of the privilege I had to just be born in a culture which is so old and ancient. And it's such an incredible thing that through you, there's a bridge between the two parts of the world, and not just two parts, but I think the two two parts of the minds, two parts of the heart and the mind. So I think that uh, uh, congratulations on finding this life path and uh, creating such a beautiful equilibrium for the planet. Thank you, Bakul. And I, you know, I, think, I think as I notice your work and what you're trying to do with the podcast and what you try to do, um, you know, you're also doing something very similar. And we have a couple friends in common already. I just see that people are moving in sync. People are moving in step. We want something similar. We know what isn't working. Uh, we, we're not quite sure what will work, but we're in a very deep phase of experimentation. Uh, but if you look closely, I mean, you are someone who has spent time in Bali. You're someone that is a well acquainted with the magic. You are someone that also has, you know, meandered, I'm sure, uh, made your way through uh, eddies in, in the stream. Uh, as an entrepreneur and as a thought leader yourself, and you found your way back to your home and to your roots and under the veneer, I mean, because we have, in a way, exported, when I say we, Western culture, commercialization, industrialization has exported its values all over the world. So in the depths of Mumbai, you're still able to, you know, see the repercussions or the consequences of this kind of hedonic, 
a very grossly material way of living. But if you scratch the surface, India is just one of these cultures that is so deep and so rich and so profound and has offered humanity such a well of knowledge, uh, universal knowledge. And I, I just, I'm happy for you too, because you're, you're getting closer and closer to your own roots and, and you're going to have something to broadcast and you're going to have something to share. And in that way, I think we're all sort of fra- like fractals amplifying the same kind of message. A hundred percent. I completely agree on that. I think that the pandemic really kind of catalyzed that moment when I think it wasn't just the identity as to where you were born, but who we are as humans. And it kind of got people together in many ways in uh, in, in kind of sharing, sharing um, an intellectual and a wisdom and at the same time also just knowledge of everyday life and understanding. And I, I always believe that... Uh, it doesn't take an East without a West. The wholeness is actually comes from both parts of the world. So um, one without each other is kind of, uh, it's kind of kind of crippled, you know, like we need the knowledge, but we also need the material. I think a good balance is exactly what we're striving for. But uh, yeah, that was really, that was really, that was really eye opening for me to come back to India after many years and living in Bali, working in New York City, working through Singapore and just understanding how things work and how the same thing and the same material reality could be so many different things based on where you see it from. But coming from that, um, I'm very curious as to like what your origins were, especially especially in this part of the world, like f- coming from United States of America. And I'm guessing you grew up in New York City. Uh, how how did this happen? How did this shift happen for you? What was your frontier moment when you left that part of the world or you left the understanding of what you knew and you realized that there's more to it than you know and what was your breakthrough moment how did the ancient happen for you thank you for these questions they're great questions i mean this is a great question to people listening what mccool is asking is really what joseph campbell called the answering the call of the hero's quest and uh you know, I can tell my story, but as I do, it's really important that listeners really think about their origin story because there's a universal motif and it's, 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 it's very helpful uh, as a contemplative person to take a 2000 step back and look at your life and what you often find are cycles, spirals, not a linear progression. It's not a neat stepping stone where the the, the, the pavement is well paved ahead of you. It, 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 is, it is oftentimes a very um, you know, unknown uh, path. Um, it, it, it involves oftentimes a lot of trials. Uh, but as you make your way towards its culmination, you often get a sense that you would have had it no other way because the trials themselves have allowed you to bear new fruit. And so for me, you know, I'm... My origin story is is very much coming full circle because I was born in Singapore and I was raised in Hong Kong. So the first eighteen years of my life I spent in Asia, and I was I was educated in an American school and I it was a college preparatory education. So I you know my 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 compass bearing was going to be to the United States, but I was at a very early age introduced and exposed to uh, Asian cultures, whether they be from Thailand. I did actually come to Bali when I was 16 years old. I was here 30 years ago uh, studying gamelan and batik uh, in Ubud. And uh, 30 years ago, Ubud was a completely different place. Uh, and, I, you know, 
we were, you know, I had a, a, a very privileged upbringing. My father was a, an expat living in Hong Kong. My mother was a, an interior decorator of Turkish Levantine uh, heritage. My father was British. Uh, they spoke three, four, five languages between them. They exposed me to the Middle East and Turkey and Greece as well as Asia. So I got a very, um, I have to say, world travel and world culture was deep in the fiber of my being at a very, very early age. Uh, by the time I got to college in uh, outside of Boston, a very small liberal arts college, I, I knew something was a little off for me. I never quite fit in the box. I was never going to really make it. I was never always, uh, I was never really all that bright. Uh, I never, never really was very book smart. I had a lot of uh, problems um, with spelling and arithmetic and mathematics. I was undiagnosed di dyslexic and it really, uh, it fed on my uh, self-esteem uh, growing up. And I was lucky to find um, a teacher very early on in, in college uh, who who could see that I wasn't going to make it unless some new sort of uh, sort of interesting creative uh, opportunities for, for 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 learning were afforded me, and so he 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 told me about this special program called the Wheaton Scholar Program that allowed me to bypass the curriculum and design my own study. And I'll never forget the day where I was in the basement of an old building. 16, uh, 17, something, so maybe 1800-year-old building, really in the early 1800s, sort of uh, dusty and old and dark. And I was in the basement. Um, and I found a pamphlet there. And it was one of these, you know, this is pre-internet. <laughs> it was, a, it was a, 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 a ripped, dusty pamphlet in an old place that just caught my eye. It had the face of the Buddha on it. And it said, Antioch Buddhist studies program abroad, meditate in India. And uh, I, you know, it was three, four pages. It, it discussed that you could go abroad as a, a student and get credits and learn how to live with the monks, learn how to meditate, uh, learn how to uh, study uh, the sacred texts, uh, live in an immersive environment, uh, do a research project and get credit. And I thought, that's it. I mean, that that is it. Something just lit up in me. And, you know, it's been 20 plus, 25 years since then. And I look mm -hmm. back on that moment, Mukul, and I'm sure your listeners and yourself have these moments where you, it's uncanny. There's no rhyme or reason to it. You can't really pin it down with critical reason. You can't, it's not, it defies the intellect, these moments. Um, there's something very karmic. There's something that doesn't make, I mean, why, why would a young 19 year old want to forego the college lifestyle of partying, make their way to one of the harshest environments in rural India Bihar, as you know, one of the most, you know, chaotic environments, and at that time, very dangerous, uh, to sit and meditate at four in the morning with the monks. It just, it just defies logic. Uh, I could have gone to Florence. I could have gone to London to study economics. I could have gone anywhere. Uh, but I chose Budgaya, the, the place where the Buddha gained enlightenment. And uh, so I can only look back now and reaffirm a deeper worldview and a deeper knowing that this, this spot and this way of life uh, 
had in a prior life made a very deep impression on me. And that is the only way I can make sense of it. And I don't need any confirmation anymore from anybody else, whether that makes sense to anybody else or not is irrelevant for me at that young tender age being as lost and not fitting in as I did. And as I felt finding that opportunity to circumvent the system and to find a portal, what Joseph Campbell would call a portal in time to find my way to Bodhgaya and to meet a teacher in Bodhgaya to learn the sacred traditions and to walk me hand in hand. I remember keenly, never forget it, walking hand in hand with my meditation teacher, Godwin, a Sri Lankan meditation master, uh, down in the evening or in the late dusk or late morning. It was still not before sunrise, dark, uh, down a dusty road at the time, but Gaia is, of course, like the Mecca of Buddhism, but it is, you know, it hasn't changed much in three, four hundred years. A dusty road, walking hand in hand in the dark to the Mahabodhi Stupa, which is the temple of enlightenment, the temple of awakening, commemorating the Buddha's awakening, where the Bodhi tree sits and sitting with Godwin under the Bodhi tree and not speaking but just being embraced and enveloped in his presence. And as many listeners might know and might feel and might, might really resonate with, sometimes childhood is a very, very challenging enterprise to make it through. Oftentimes we don't get the nutrients that we're looking for. And that is, couldn't be more true in my case, I'm, my parents afforded me every kind of material possibility and opportunity, but there, there wasn't a lot of this intangible, emotional attunement and presence. And it took me 20 years to find it. And to, it took me 20 years to find it in an unconditional stranger sitting under the Bodhi tree. And I remember what kind of impact it had on me. It made me feel wounds and all that I was okay. No matter how strange I felt, no matter how alone I felt, no matter how depressed I may have been, I was safe. And that's when I knew I was actually home. It wasn't just the teacher and wasn't just his presence. And it wasn't just the temple and it wasn't just the Mecca Buddhism. It was all of it. It was, it was like finally after a very long journey through the darkness arriving. Wow, Miles, that really gave me goosebumps. That's such a beautiful story and you're an incredible storyteller. And I think that this experience was so heartwarming in its own sense, but at the same time to have that at a tender age, um, as in Buddhism, they say that we all have the Buddha inside us when we're young. And if we find it early, we stay Buddha till the end of life. So I feel like there could be a divine karmic way that you, you reached both Gaya and you found your place in the world. But how was it when you went back to where you came from? How was it when <laughs> you spent the next few years of your life after that? 
I asked that question because I think that I've had such a different, uh, such a different chemistry coming to the chaos from Harmony uh, after living in both parts of the world. So I want to know how it was for you to go back to the so-called Western Harmony um, from the chaos. Yeah, I mean, I think it's my experience is, is probably very common. Any anyone who's been on a journey and made it to the other side. So in, in Joseph Campbell's parlance, this is this part of the story is the departure and entering entering into what's called the special world, leaving the ordinary world, uh, leaving the college life, leaving you know breakfast, lunch, and dinner, leaving the books, leaving the familiar world and creature comforts of the United States, taking the risk, leaving home, taking the risk, and entering in the unknown. I had no idea where I was going. In fact. In 1996, because there was no internet, I remember very clearly throwing a large atlas on the dining room table with my parents, and they are asking me, where, excuse my French, where the fuck are you going? And we could not find Budgaya on the map in the atlas. We just couldn't find it. We could find Gaia. <laughs> we could not find Budgaya. And I think that's a very symbolic moment because it was like, you're going, but you don't know where you're going. You're, you're on your way. Your bags are packed. The trip is paid for, but we, we have no idea. And I think that's what it takes. I think your listeners, uh, my listeners on my show, the, 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 if I could pan out for a second to make it as relevant as I can to everybody listening, in a way, the whole world is at this very juncture right now. From an astrological point of view, we have crossed the threshold, the 2020 conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn and Pluto that happened at January 12th, 2020. Everybody will remember that date as a significant time because it was really the genesis of the pandemic. The great pandemic of 2020 actually coincided uncoincidentally with one of the largest scale cosmological uh, astrological conjunctions that we could have expected. And that's no, that synchronicity is not, uh, uh, it's not random. It's celestially timed. And we can say that the old world dissolved. A, a great death or disillusion period happened at that moment. The world before the pandemic and the one we are amidst uh, build, rebuilding right now are two separate worlds. There is never going to be a going back. We're in the unknown phase right now. And so, you know, just to answer your question, but to always try to keep it an open question for your listeners, the journey to uh, departure, as challenging, as difficult, as uncertain, and as terrifying as it is, it's the coming home that is even more bewildering. And those of your listeners that may or may not have had a psychedelic experience know this too. It's one thing to purge and another thing and to, and to, and to, to enter into a, a, a disillusion in which your sense of self and your sense of space-time continuing dissolve or collapse and enter into that liminal phase where you're really guided by agencies and spirit guides. But it is another thing entirely to regain your egoic consciousness and to try to make sense of what you have discovered and to try to reintegrate back into the world. That is a second 
step or second movement in the heroic journey. The one is the departure from the ordinary to the special world. But then there is also the return from the special world back to the ordinary world. And in my case, as a youngster, having been so deeply influenced by the four and a half months that I spent in India with my teachers, uh, just, and believe me, it wasn't all blissful. Not, not all of it was a, a divine and rainbows coming out of my ears and meditating. I mean, there was deep, deep longing, deep sadness, you know, terror, all kinds of things. But I have to say, the coming home was a, a much greater challenge because, as you can imagine, the, the people that I knew before I left, their lives hadn't changed much. And when you're in college and you're sophomore, junior, the routines, they're pretty, they're pretty uh, hedonic. Uh, so there was a lot of partying going on. There's a lot of like, um, you know, the, the basic, the base instincts, you know, mobilizing the base instincts, just sort of pursuing pleasure and gratification. And I had been working with those uh, afflictions, addictions, needs, yearnings, and what was underneath them, you know, the shadow was deep in the shadow for four and a half months and meditating and doing so unsuccessfully and try, try again. And, and, and learning about the mind from the Tibetan, the, the, the Tibetan psychonauts. And when I came home, I was deeply alienated because I didn't have a Sangha. I didn't have any community. I, I was I was alone, having had this very profound life-altering experience, as people might do when they come home from a psychedelic experience or come home from some life-altering, maybe even a near-death experience. I mean, if you talk to people who have had a near-death experience, one of the problems that they confront is that they have seen the other side and they know that when they get back into ordinary bandwidth of reality people won't understand. And that's exactly what happened to the Buddha in his biography too. After, after gaining enlightenment at Bodhgaya on what's called the diamond throne, he was in bewilderment. After seeing deeply the nature of reality exactly as it was beyond his projections, he wasn't sure he could convey that to anybody else. And he took actually a period of time to metabolize. And there was a moment, there was a moment where he thought to himself, this, this reality that I have discovered is too profound. It is beyond words. It's undescribable. It's ineffable. I, I, I'll keep it to myself. I'll sit here under the tree and I'll keep it to myself. And you and I will go to this very spot, Mukul. It may be in the film. There is a place in the, uh, per, in, in the, in the near horizon from uh, eye shot from where the Bodhi tree is. There is a lotus pond. The Buddha gained, he, he, after gaining enlightenment and taking his time to reflect on the ineffable quality of reality and debating whether he was going to you know, share his experience or stay silent, it is said that he looked out on that um, lotus pond and he saw many lotuses that had not yet breached the surface. Lily pads. A, a, a pond filled with lily pads. Except for one. One single lotus. Emerging from the water. 
with its petals unfolded to kiss the sun, to receive the sun. And he thought to himself, of all the countless lives and all the countless beings, if even one, if even one hears my message and tastes the nectar of immortality as a result, then it will be worth it to try to share. And that is a story of altruism. That's the story that makes all the journey and all the confusion and all the disorganization and all the disorientation of coming home worthwhile. Because what you have discovered is not just for yourself. What you've discovered, McCool, on your journey, if you kept it for yourself, it would not be nearly as satisfying as when you try and fail most of the time. But the 1%, the 1% where your podcast reaches a, a viewer or a listener who may be in need of inspiration or guidance or, or, or good story or good smile or good laugh, and it gets deep in their being. And it, and it feeds something that they're hungry for, and that makes it worth it. That makes it worth it. Wow, Miles. I feel seen, and I can't even tell you how much I feel comforted. Your words are just so comforting, but at the same time, they're so true. And I can vouch on that because, again, as I said, we sit on very different dimensions. While you come from the West and I come from the East, and we've had our exchange, and I... I, I I think that everything you mentioned and how you described your your source, as I would say, your source of wisdom and your source of just learning about life in yourself is just so, um, I think it's such a personal experience. It's just such a, it's undescribable, even though you've done very beautiful justice to how you felt and who you became. I just think that the, the, very, the very source and the very feeling and the very sensorial upliftment of that particular moment of your life um, it's the similar thing for me. I'm, I'm trying to share that for other people to see just so the world gets less lonely and we have someone else to actually feel the same, the same, that there is more to life, there's more possibility and there's more dimension. So I'm just glad that you found it and not just you found it, but you're doing everything you can to share this message and share this knowledge and share this magic that you've created in your life and in your world and in your work with others. So again, Congratulations on finding that calling. Congratulations on having lived this hero's journey. And congrats on actually uh, being together again. You know, I, 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 find, I find it such an honor to actually have this, this, this upcoming travel and to go to the source where you found your source and uh, possibly have that in the film. So I'm supremely excited about that. This brings yeah, us to I our next too. question. Yes. <laughs> this, yeah, so as you talk about moving through uh, psychotherapy to, to, to spirituality in the Eastern world, um, living in the New, New York City, which is where you were for the most part of your last few years, um, how do you find integrated harmony? And I'm, I'm, you, you're dealing with a lot of point of views. You're dealing with a lot of different realities in everyday life, and you're actually not just dealing with it. You're actually kind of sorting and untangling so many different kinds of threads. How do you find your balancing act through what ritual do you harmonize your eastern and your western identity yeah it's such a great question and you know i have to be frank like it's not easy and i don't have it uh i don't have a um a claim on doing this so well 
I just want to make that clear and be as transparent as I can. I don't, it's not like I rely on a set of practices and I'm so I sort of zen. I've reached I've reached a kind of zen still point where I can be in the heart of Manhattan. <laughs> I'm going to disappoint your listeners right now by just saying I haven't discovered that. I am constantly being thrown off the tightrope, uh, to be perfectly frank. I am, um, you know, I, of course, one of the, one of the um, greatest supports is community. I, I mentioned that coming back to the college, uh, you know, the college environment after being in Budgaya and sort of missing out on that container and that support, uh, was was a one of the was one of the first challenges that I needed to address, and so you know, shortly after college, I found you know it's it's about the quality, not the quantity. I found a few small friends, started the chapter for um, students for free Tibet, started a meditation group on campus. A, a lot of that legacy still remains at Wheaton College, and found a kind of you know found a group of interested peers to to practice with not as any sort of sort of higher than thou i've discovered something no no the idea was we're all crazy um, college is a crazy time you know i was going through crazy experiences but we're all going through crazy experiences you don't have to go to budgaya to go through crazy experiences you don't have to stay at wheaton college to go through crazy experiences just having a mind and a life is a is an awful <laughs> awful predicament so finding support was number one, you know, even if that meant like, um, you know, and they, they know this very well in the 12-step program. They say people, places, and things need to be replaced. If you're going from a life of addiction and near death, uh, you have to substitute your lifestyle, your attitude, your, your friendships. Uh, you have to leave. You have to leave those, those ones that are slippery behind, and you have to find the like-minded um, and that's so if you want to be a good musician and you want to be an artist, uh, you want to be a great, uh, av- an avid entrepreneur, you have to seek like-minded people. You have to, you have to seek the company of people who have grown a few paces above you, be- before you, um, ahead of you. Uh, they say like in sports, for example, don't play with the kids that are of your level, go play basketball or baseball with the older kids. Uh, not only are you going to spend more time in the gym harnessing your skills, but you're going to be, you know, forced to level up. And so support has been the number one key ingredient to uh, finding some semblance of balance. I mean, I shortly after college, the next little bead in my mala was uh, finding a mentor. Uh, Joe Luizzo was my mentor. He was a psychiatrist and Buddhist scholar in New York City. I did end up spending a very profound, very old school uh, student teacher, student mentor relationship of some 22 years uh, with Joe Luizzo. I think this is one of the greatest achievements of my life. I think it is one that, you know, it's a very rare uh, opportunity. Uh, I think it is very old school. I mean, most of, most people learn from books and academic institutions, but there is something about the close uh, proximity with a master uh, that I I am very proud to say that uh, my greatest learning in my lifetime has come by just being very very close to a master for a long time, serving the master, uh, watching how they work watching a master uh, musician, watching a master painter, watching 
a master uh, uh, craftsman. In my case, I was watching a master therapist, learning how to integrate neuroscience and trauma therapy and psychotherapy with Buddhist mind science and meditation and visualization, uh, learning at the hospital, learning how to apply it with different patient populations, learning how to do, learning how to work with people who had a longstanding depression, learning how to work with people who have terminal illness and cancer, uh, learning the sacred art of using these profound practices to help, if not change a life, at least make life more livable. And, um, and that you can't really teach from a book. And so I'm, I have to say that the next sort of run in my biography really is one of being just a very dutiful student, just very um, receptive and willing to learn, being curious and really apprenticing my, myself and being um, availing myself to the knowledge of somebody who's, who's, who, who before me spent their, uh, you know, Joe Luizzo was a student of Robert Thurman, who's probably the single most influential uh, Western Buddhist uh, on the planet. He's the, he was the first uh, Westerner to become a Tibetan Buddhist under the Dalai Lama. And, 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 and after that became the first endowed chair of Buddhist studies at Columbia University. So that's my lineage, what in, in Sanskrit they call the parampara, the lineage. You, you, are, you are defined by your lineage. It is through the lineage where you get your knowledge. So I trace mine through a 20-some year uh, stage or apprenticeship with Joe Luizzo. He himself did his 20 years under Robert Thurman. Robert Thurman did his 20-some years under the Dalai Lama. All of us consider ourselves still students. You're always a student. It's a lifelong process. So I would say that, you know, to find um, integration, to find balance, uh, number one, find a teacher, find a community, find the support. Uh, that's your tightrope and your safety net. Um, find a series of practices. I guess what, what I want to say, though, is in finding that, I also have to come to um, a sense of humility that in spite of all of that, uh, I lose my shit every single day. And this is something that I think is really important to broadcast because I get all in, in the position that I occupy, maybe the one that you occupy, people have all kinds of curiosities, but they also have all kinds of, um, under, you know, sort of projections and ideas about who you are and what you do. And uh, I think it's really important just to say like on any given day, I'm a dad, I'm a husband I'm also a child. I also have two children. They're, they're eight and five. And the world is crazy. The world of being a parent is crazy. It's so unpredictable. It's like dealing with two schizophrenic you know, beings in your family. <laughs> and I lose my cool all the time. So I'm, I'm, I, I, think, I think part of it is just doing the best that you can. I mean, I think, yes, compared to no practice, and compared to no support, and compared to no path, yes, okay, you're, you, I have to grant it. I have to say, my life before having a spiritual path was like being lost in the dark. My life now on a spiritual path is like knowing where you, where you need to go and knowing how to get there, but still being 
very capable of getting lost, very capable of getting lost. Um, so I think I just want to make that clear because, um, yeah, I think, I think, I think we can be so, um, assured about the empowerment of our technologies and the empowerment of our tradition. But I think there's just something also very refreshing to hear someone say, I get lost all the time. I lose my cool all the time. I fall down all the time. And there's something in that. There's something in that. Uh, there's something, there's always more to learn about the mind. There's always more to learn about why I have, uh, irritations, angers, bouts with depression, why I have in my own biography, I've struggled with anxiety and panic. I've, you know, I'm a therapist that I have very well acquainted with panic. Uh, so I think, you know, if I look at my story and I'm honest, there's so much left in me to discover and to learn. I'm, I'm very far from being perfect, very far from having it all together, very far from walking the tightrope without uh, failing. I fail miserably time and time again. I just want to make that clear. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. I think that in Buddhism, they say that uh, surrendering is actually the art of winning. And uh, <laughs> what you're stating in your own words is, uh, is that you're really comfortable with surrendering. You're really comfortable with imperfection and you're okay with knowing that you're human <laughs> and that's okay to be one when you're born in that body and that mind. But you have touched the sacred, you have touched the magic and you've seen it and felt it and shared it. And I guess it's actually those impermanence of those moments. That's what makes it so beautiful. And that's what makes us human, but at the same time divine. So yeah, that sounds perfectly relatable, uh, perfectly on sync with uh, exactly the kind of work that I do and exactly the kind of path that I'm on, like living between New York, India, Singapore, Nepal, Bali, having different time zones, just working through different kinds of lives. Um, it is all about finding those impermanent moments. And it's all about surrendering to when we can't make it. So thank you for sharing that. Niles. Yeah, yeah. This brings us to the last one. And this is one of my favorite questions. We actually thought this through for many, many uh, months. I would say I sat with the Banantry headquarters to actually envision what is it like? This question came in when we were in the middle of the pandemic and everybody was giving this like dead idea about, whoa, the world is going to die and the world's going to end. Um, and I was really hopeful and, I've and I always thought that there's going to be more. I think, that, I think that the pandemic was needed to actually get us to realize what we truly are and what we truly value. So bringing this question to you, Miles, and asking you, where do you see with your imaginative footprint the possibilities that lie with this planet in 2121, which is 100 years from the day we planned this podcast? Where do you see the world as a utopian, whimsical, absolute dream? But where would you want to see in your in your pragmatic sense, the world that'll become in 2121. What are the possibilities? Yeah, I'm, you know, since the, um, the great conjunction that I referred to, I, I have not up, only recently become a student of astrology. I, I added astrology to my toolkit and my interest set late in life. And the reason that I did that was that I, I like the non-pathological frame of reference and the large scale view that it offers. Uh, it, it is, it is a kind of celestial diagnostic diagnostic that is not pathologizing. It says that there are available at any time, all it's not based on destiny uh, that, that kind of horoscope BS I don't buy, but the 
the kind of astrology that sees that there is an infinite horizon of possibilities. And depending on how you orient yourself, you are working with weather patterns. You're working with the weather, the astrological forecast of the time of the moment. And we are now heading into a new, a new age. I know that, that that's a very loaded statement, but we are, we are heading, we're coming out of a 21 century period called the Piscean age. If one were to think of the cosmos and the sort of rotation of the stars and the planets, there is a, what is called the great year that all mystical traditions refer to. And that great year is like a clock. It's a sacred clock. And each of the hour increments, the hands of time, each of the, um, you know, from 12 to one, for example, takes 2,100 years to complete. And we are in the sea change between the clock, the hands of the clock ch uh, changing its, its, its uh, constellation from Pisces to Aquarius. And so if you and I, just as an observer, look at what we can observe in amongst our peers and in pop culture and on the news, we'll, we'll come up with a very similar list. And I'm going to just ask your, your listeners to do the same. Like, what did you notice in the lead up to the pandemic? What were your biggest grievances? What were the biggest concerns that we faced as a collective on the planet? And sure enough, we're going to come up with something. Mean, just being observers, sensitive human creatures, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter what socioeconomic status or culture, you're going to see very similar things. And it turns out that the things on the list are part and parcel of the signature of the changing of the ages. We hit a tipping point. We drew from the earth all the resources because we had become so materialistic. But if we look at the materialism, the materialism is just the tail end, the last hundred years, or let's say 300 years since the age of reason in Europe. Prior to the age of reason the, the, and the scientific revolution and the industrial age, we had thousand years of, of monotheism. And just at the very tail end of the age, it goes south. Something happens. And yes, of course, the age of reason is filled with wonder and the internet and sending a man to the moon and creating vaccines. But it is also this kind of narrowing of our perspective, a kind of giving pre pre preference or privilege to reason, of becoming disenchanted with the world of reducing everything down to matter and exploiting it. The rise of consumerism, the rise of neoliberal capitalism, the, the, the rise of militarization and exploitation of the resources have all yielded the great problems that we are now faced with today. We are at the tipping point of an ecological crisis you, for example, in, I mean, the, that image in Mumbai of those billion dollar towers 
overlooking the slums is a great symbol of the economic disparity on this planet, the, in, in, in the systemic racism. All of these are the shadow emerging. And there's no escaping it. And this is what happened in the pandemic is that the great sickness, the great underbelly had its apocalypse, its revelation. And it's not that the, it's not that the end, it's not the end of the world. It's the end of an age. It's an end of an age where the pendulum has swung too far to the left brain of reason, uber rational, and we have lost our spirit. We have lost integrity. We have lost virtue. We have lost what grounds us. And that's why people like you and me, we, we maybe move to Bali. We maybe try to get out of New York and we move to Bali because we are looking for the magic. We are looking for that sense of wonder. We are yearning to become re-enchanted with the world. We want to see that it's not just billiard balls on a pool table or building a, a brick and mortar. There's spirit. There's spirit. And the Balinese culture and the Indian culture Underneath all the concrete, it's still there. It still understands when you go into a very humble, modest home in India, there's always one thing there. There's always a puja there. There's always a little, very modest effigy of one of the deities. There's always, even if there's not much money, there's still a flower or water offering. There is a connection to the unseen world of beings and with it a deeper sense of reverence and wonder to the world. There is connection still with deep mythology and narratives uh, that transcend one single life, uh, that help people orient themselves through life, uh, help tie them to greater spans of consciousness and spans of time and spans of purpose. Uh, this, is, this is what I see happening in a hundred years is that we will come back into integration. This is not about tearing down the walls of science. This is not about tearing down the patriarchy. This is not about tearing down or deframing religion, uh, reason. This is a period that we are entering into where we have to confront and accept and atone for being too narrow-minded. But what we get to do in as we do that, what, we, what, what opportunity we get to afford is to bring things back into harmony, back into balance. So, so science can find partnership with spirit. And, and reason can be partnered with intuition. And, and, and cross-culturally, there can be greater dialogue. Technology can be grounded with ethics, for example. I mean, technology, I am very concerned of not only having two kids, but just being exposed to what happens when kids very early on now have these cell phones and access to social media and what it's doing to their brains, for example. And there's no stopping technology. Technology is here. It's very powerful. It's very compelling. It is having a very, very adverse uh, effect on our brain systems particularly the most younger generation. It's stirring them up. It's giving them a lot of false, uh, uh, false notions of confidence, of false notions of who they should become, how they should look, and how they should act. Uh, they don't have the brain development in place to really control the hormones 
and the uh, the chemical the chemical induction that's happening in the in the midbrain and the amygdala. Um, it's but it's here to stay. And so here is an example of how the world has gone too far to an extreme. And, and so the solution is not to destroy technology and to become a luddite. The solution is to unite ethics and sacred culture with technology. The, the, the solution is not just to destroy the masculine and destroy the patriarchy. I often get into tussles with deep feminists. Uh, of course, yes, yes, the, the masculine on its own uh, needs to needs to go through an accounting. It, it has the patriarchy has some accounting to do. It has some self reflection to do. It has some shadow to reclaim, and it has some atoning to do. Uh, but to, to say that you're going to destroy one side of the pendulum means that you're just going to swing to the other. And the, and the shadow that remains there on that side will eat you too. So the idea of the Aquarian age is a period of integration when we'll finally swing from religion to science back to the middle. We'll swing from uh, one side to the other and then we'll find a middle point. And so this is what I'm very excited about. Now, a 100-year span in your question is an awfully long time. Uh, I won't be around to see it. Um, Most people on this podcast, listening to this podcast, won't be around to see it. But it is such a profound thing to think about. When I was teaching my students in the height of the pandemic, I gave them this uh, symbol to think about. There was a time where they would construct a construct a uh, cathedral and the builders, the stonemasons of the cathedral would be laying brickwork and stonework for a cathedral they would not live to see. And yet, and yet the pride and, and, and the privilege of participating communally in the construction of a magnificent cathedral that would be a source for others in the future to reach God meant that they had spent their lives well. They had, they had been steeped in something of value and meaning, and they were happy to do it. And I see that for us, McCool. I see that for us. I see that we are in the early stages of this transition. And we won't see it. We won't see the full blossoming of the, of, of the vision of, of unity. We won't see the full fruition of the balancing act, but we can participate in it now. You're someone who's an entrepreneur. You're a thought leader. You, you straddle the worlds of spirituality and technology. You're bringing about a seed in the minds of your viewers to participate in our unfoldment of consciousness now. Well, the kind of conversations that you're starting and the kinds of speakers that you're bringing on, we are slowly, slowly crafting a vision of our future that we may not be actually, maybe around to actualize, but we get to participate in the evolution of consciousness. We get to seed that for future generations. And I think that, that is worth living. That is life worth living. That is, that is in, inherently meaningful. Oh, thank you, Miles. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for seeing me, for being me. Thank you for supporting this podcast and supporting the vision. And 
it's such an incredible honor to have you on the show today and just listen to your wisdom. And it's just, uh, I honestly can't wait to meet you in person with my arms wide open and give you a big hug because that's happening soon. And I honestly can't wait. Yeah, me too. And McCall, I, I think, you know, it's one thing. This is the, this is the thing. Here's another balancing act is the power of bringing us together on technology. Like without the technology, maybe you and I don't get to meet. Now that we've met, there's still no substitute for that big warm hug up there in the Himalayas, you know, and I'm looking forward to that. Likewise. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for everyone who was listening. I'm sure this was one of the most interesting episodes of the Possibility Podcast and definitely one of the most different ones. Uh, thank you again, Miles. Thank you, everyone, for listening and tuning in. And I'll see you next episode uh, with another interesting speaker, with another interesting dimension. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in.